the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. She had told me there was no way that she would have ever been forced into a car like at gunpoint or anything. She would have said, shoot me, because she told me that. So it had to be someone she knew and trusted or someone that just physically, you know, overpowered her and and got her in a car or took her. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm here with Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And today is part two of the Lisa Peak story. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode, you're going to have no idea what's going on. So go back and listen to it. Now you can binge this episode and, you know, everything will be tied up in a little bow. How are we doing today, guys? We're good. And I'm very excited about this story because as far as stories that have just sort of we've been approached to do, I was yeah. blown away by blown this away. one. I was absolutely blown away by this one. Yes. It's one of the most layered, sad, important stories we've had in a while. I mean, they're all yeah. important, but um, to hear our first degree Terry's desperation for justice for Lisa, I think means so much to all of us. So we hope you guys enjoy this series because these cases need attention. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's so rare too, to get a first degree from a, from a story that happened you know, like in the early seventies. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, because we know that like most of our first degrees, as we've seen, a lot of them are like, you know, more recent or 10 years, 20 years or whatever like that though. But this is literally almost 50 years ago and there's still people that are reaching out to us, which is amazing. So thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, no, we feel very honored to tell this story. Good on you, Terry. All right, Billy, what day is it today? Okay, well, I have some housekeeping. Oh, uh, I've got oh to, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. I've got to, uh, um, um, apparently I'm doing a, uh, a thing for my, my book. I've got to announce that my book where I'm going on tour, July 19th, Woo! my book comes out, Killers Amidst Killers, tracking serial killers amidst, you know, operating under the cloak of the opioid epidemic and, um, starts uh, July 19th. I'm going to be in Ohio and Chicago and Michigan and all a bunch of places. But apparently if you go to my Instagram, you can click on the link, you can order the book and then you get the first chapter that I read in a very tiny room in Burbank for free. Uh, Ooh, in an terms audiobook of that, so, yeah. extra. An audiobook extra, yes. And I really gave it my all with that audiobook. And apparently right. when you're when this is one of the things that they told me to do, eat green apples, because green apples apparently eliminate your saliva. Oh. Well, I have I to record my audiobook before. next week. So I will be eating mm-hmm. some green apples. They said green apples. No, they said no milk and green apples. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, go order Billy's book, go get a tour date, and um, of course, go subscribe to our Patreon because we yes. have so many good things happening over there. We have video content only on our Patreon that we are never going to be releasing never. in our normal feed. <laughs> so go check us out looking like idiots while we're, you know, doing all of our Patreon episodes, which are obviously a little bit on the lighter side of true crime. So we're Honest, having a yes. lot of fun over there. Honestly, we're living our best lives on Patreon because not for nothing. We love our shows on the main feed, but we've been doing them for like three years. Patreon's yeah. like our our, cre- our new creative outlet. We have tons of new segments. Uh, you're learning tons of personal things. You're you're seeing um, 
in learning about crimes we haven't had the opportunity to do because we're a yeah. submission-based podcast. I think you guys will really love it. So definitely check it out. Yes. Go check we it out. We are probably one of the very, very few submission-based true crime podcasts. We are. Like yeah. so, Seriously, when you think about it, we really are. So I can't I think mean, of that's, anybody else. That's, no, no, I can't think about it at, at, at all. So I don't know if our listeners know that. it's We yeah. can't we, – we don't do a show – or a topic that someone hasn't approached us about doing. We don't reach out to victims' yeah. families. We don't, we yeah. don't, we're not invasive. Like it's like if you want to share, this is meant to be a therapeutic platform um, mm-hmm. for somebody to tell a story. So mm-hmm. we fully base all of this on on our listeners' experiences. So it's a reminder to please send us your stories. Right. Because they're yeah, all important. Just us. look at this one. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, the email is hello at the first degree podcast.com. I always say mm-hmm. at the end of the show, but if you're out there listening and you have a story to tell, you yes. can email us there. Yeah, people people were asking on, on the um, our Facebook page, people were asking like, where do I send a, a story? And Alexis answered. So that was great. Well, there you go. But today is Wednesday, May 25th. It's Geek Pride Day. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. And I will say this, like the picture that they use for Geek Pride is a guy with suspenders and a bow tie and (laughs) he's very skinny and he's got glasses. And I will say this, it reminded me of when I was a trying to be a baseball player when I was in like sixth grade, seventh grade, I was tall and skinny and I wore glasses and I remember going to baseball camp and got picked on so much for being such a, and I got called a geek. And that was my like my bullying moment was then at Ron Darling baseball camp. <laughs> Billy tried to do too much. He wasn't a hockey team. He was in a band. He was a, no, a baseball was when, player. He was there was so you tried to do too much. I Billy. tried you to do no. I tried to do baseball from like from like fourth grade to eighth grade, and then I was like, I suck at this. You were a drummer. You were a singer. Like where does it end? I'm going to do skates, and then I then I went on hockey because none of my nobody in my school played hockey except for me, so they couldn't even see how potentially bad I was. I was a better hockey player than I was, yeah, but I didn't have to run because I ran really funny too. It's a whole thing, but Geek Pride Day, I will suck it in, even though I think I'm more of a nerd than a than a Pride guy mm-hmm. or, or a geek guy. Well, congratulations on your day. <laughs> Very proud of you. I'm proud of you too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that was a long intro. That's enough of that. So yeah. well, let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So in part one of this two-part series, our first degree Terry told us about her friend, Lisa Peak, who in the fall of 1975 had been recruited into a sex trafficking extortion ring run by a man named John Carmody. And as the end of the year approached, Lisa decided she could no longer put up with the sexual abuse, threats, and manipulation that she was experiencing at the hands of this guy any longer. So It got to the point where she even considered taking her own life, but instead, she decided to take down John Carmody. On December 8th, Lisa and her parents went to Mason City, Iowa, to report what Carmody had done to her and the other victims. And the next day, his house was raided and he was arrested. 
With Carmody sentenced to 40 years in prison, Lisa started moving on with her life. She was going to write a book about her story and had enrolled back at Wartburg College in Waverly for the next school year. On September 5th, 1976, Lisa moved into an all-girls dorm, and two days later, she was found dead just outside Waverly City limits. When residents found out that Lisa had been beaten, strangled, and her neck broken, shockwaves swept through the town. And remember, this was a really, really tiny town where things like this don't happen. Our first degree Terry remembers the moment she found out about 19-year-old Lisa's death, and she was shocked and terrified. As the news picked up the story and Tara swept through the city, Terry called her parents to tell them what was going on and to let them know that she was actually safe. And when Terry talked to her parents, she was completely devastated and told them that she had no idea what happened to Lisa. Nobody did, which prompted a lot of fear on the heels of Lisa's murder. People were scared. A lot of people were scared. And they were scared of even just being alone with a guy on campus. And a lot of the guys that had dated Lisa, too, I mean, I felt bad almost for them. Anyway, that knew her, you know, romantically or dated or was associated with her. It's going to be your first maybe suspect. But what was hard was to see other people on campus look at them and want to stay away with them just because, like, the guy that had a date with her that night was... Like, everybody was like, did he do it? Did he do it? Some girls left, or some girls left school at least for a while and then came back. There was so much fear and so many questions about Lisa's case. But Terry, like everyone, would have to wait for details. Terry would eventually have to slowly piece bits of information together as news articles were released. And Terry found out that on September 6th, Lisa told her friends that she was going shopping at the nearby Willow Lawn Shopping Center. It was the day before classes started, and she needed a few supplies and a pair of shoes. Later that evening, she had a date. But when Lisa didn't return to her dorm, her friends reported her missing. Investigators were able to determine that Lisa had at least made it to the shopping center. She'd been spotted there by numerous people. But after that, the trail went completely cold. It was as if Lisa had been abducted from the shopping center parking lot. And this theory was really, really upsetting to Terry, who had flashbacks to their talk in the car where Lisa had told Terry everything that she had gone through. She had told me there was no way that she would have ever been forced into a car like at gunpoint or anything. She would have said, shoot me. And I think after what she'd been through and made that decision, you know, like I said, to to move forward and, and not jump in front of a train. You know, she always said, no one will ever do this to me again. You know, I don't care if you walk up and threaten me with a gun, you threaten to kill me, you can kill me here because I'm not going to be forced to go through anything again. So it had to be someone she knew and trusted or someone that just physically, you know, overpowered her and, and got her in a car or took her. The next day, September 7th, Lisa's body was found by a farmer a quarter mile north of Waverly City limits. Her body was found in a ditch under a lone cottonwood tree beside a gravel road. Now, this road was known as a local lover's lane, and the tree she was found under was often an area where cars parked. She was nude. She was strangled. Her neck was broken. They were able to verify she'd been sexually assaulted. They never have found any of her clothes or personal belongings. And it wasn't very far from campus. It was a place that many of the students went. Authorities cordoned off that area, 
and collected whatever evidence they could find. And unfortunately, because this area was so often frequented by people, there was a lot of litter, there was a lot of trash. And this made it very difficult to discern between what was evidence and what was truly garbage. So if authorities found anything of importance, they never told the public about it. The rampant speculation began almost immediately. And obviously, everybody's first thought was that John Carmody had to be the person responsible for Lisa's murder. He and his followers had made explicit threats to her safety. And she turned Carmody into the police and testified against him. They felt that she even turned some of his followers against him as well. So Carmody saw this as the ultimate betrayal. Plus, he knew that Lisa intended to write a book about everything that happened, which was something else that obviously angered him. However, there was one huge problem with this theory. Carmody was in jail, serving a lengthy prison sentence. And I mean, he obviously could have ordered the hit, but there was no way that he did this with his own two hands. Right. But what about those two loyal followers that he had? The ones who stood by him even after he went to jail for all this? The woman who continued to threaten and harass Lisa and threaten her life following his conviction. Could they be responsible? There were women that said they would kill for him, and I believe they would have. I mean, they held a loaded gun to her head, and they were physically violent with these girls, you know, on the weekend. And and they were outspoken at his trial. This case is so crazy. I just want to say this right now. Okay, so... Speculation as to how Carmody could have influenced someone to carry out the murder of Lisa continued. Some people wondered if Lisa had been killed by a mafia hit in relation to Carmody. But remember, he wasn't actually involved with the mafia. So this seemed completely unrealistic. Right, but it is something he would threaten all the time. And at the time, it was the 70s. He would be like, my mafia guys will kill you if you tell anyone that I'm sexually trafficking you. Right. Absolutely. Like, this was a thing that people used to do. And this was a th- this was like a big thing, actually, in New York. Like, people would say, like, I'm connected to the mafia, so nobody would, nobody would mess with you. There was also the theory that Lisa had been abducted after being seen as an easy target because of that sex trafficking ring. This didn't seem likely either because, like Terry told us earlier, following her experience with Carmody, Lisa was extremely aware and she was extremely guarded. She wouldn't have gone anywhere willingly with a stranger. So either she went with someone she knew, or she was overpowered without anyone in the shopping center noticing. Right. And knowing what we know and knowing what you all learned from part one, this John Carmody connection to Lisa's murder seems like an absolute no-brainer. But it was quite the contrary. This was not cut and dry by any means. And soon another theory about how Lisa was killed and why she was killed and by whom started to emerge and spread through the campus at Wartburg University. Because there was another, even more disturbing and sinister possibility, that there was a serial killer on the loose in Waverly, Iowa. One that would pop their heads up every handful of years and devastate the small community with a brutal, heinous, and senseless killing. And these killings were rumored to be connected, and they were all still unsolved. And here's the kicker. Terry, a young college student in this area, had no idea about these previous killings. She hadn't learned about them until after her friend Lisa had been murdered. I had no idea that these other, you know, two girls had been killed similar ways to that time frame in Waverly until after her death. And Terry wonders whether the fact that she had no idea about these other two murders was by design. 
because of Waverly being a college town and not wanting to instill fear in potential students, they just didn't want anybody knowing that there potentially was a murder in that town. And I think that a lot of people, like even locally, they just, they don't want to be known for that. You know, Weber College doesn't want want that. Waverly doesn't want that. I think that's why we didn't know. Like, I had no idea this girl had been killed there a year before, you know. And, And I think those things, people should know. So what we have here is three very similar cases in this itty bitty town of Waverly. There had to be a connection, right? The possibility that Lisa could be a victim of a serial killer shocked Terry and it shocked everyone because these cases had long haunted the Waverly community. And everyone begins to wonder, was Lisa the third victim? So before we can address those questions, you all know the drill. We got to go back. Valerie Lynn Klosowski was born March 7th, 1957. She was the second of three daughters who all grew up in what's been described in media reports as a tumultuous household. Their parents, Harold and Janine, married and divorced each other three times before calling it quits for good. Janine then remarried while Harold and the other three girls moved into a downtown Waverly home just a few blocks from Wartburg College where our first degree Terry and her friend Lisa Peak attended. Valerie's widowed grandmother, Harold's mother, May, moved in with them and helped watch the girls while Harold worked. And Valerie spent a lot of her time writing poems. Oh, that's after my own heart. Composing songs on her guitar and hanging out with kids in her neighborhood. At 14 years old, she was already five and a half feet tall, weighing around 145 pounds with an imposing and athletic build that left her looking older than she actually was. I feel that only I was 12 and 5'9". Oh been, been there. So on the afternoon of June 13th, 1971, Valerie and her friend Luann went on a picnic and then they walked around town for a few hours before going their separate ways. So according to Valerie's grandmother, later that evening, another one of Valerie's friends, Cindy, popped over to see if Valerie could go swimming with her. So the pool, the community pool, was only half a mile away. So grandma said, it's fine, go ahead, just be home by 9 p.m., which is a very girthy curfew, if you ask me, for 14. It really is. So at around 7 p.m., Cindy's parents dropped the two girls off at the pool. Once the parents were gone, Valerie asked Cindy to take her towel and her swimsuit in with her, and she said, I told this friend I'd meet him. Cindy had a bad feeling about Valerie's meeting, so she was really begging her not to go. But Valerie said that she had to meet him or, quote, he would be mad. The two girls parted and Cindy never saw her friend ever again. When Cindy's parents arrived to pick the girls up, Valerie still wasn't back at the pool. So Cindy climbed into the car and told her parents what happened. And she later told the Courier State, I remember holding her suit and towel in my lap on the ride home thinking the worst. When they got home, Cindy's father called Valerie's father, Harold, to let him know that his daughter was missing. When Valerie didn't return home by 10 p.m., Harold reported her missing to the Waverly police. Investigators tried piecing together Valerie's last movements before she disappeared. And initially, they figured that Valerie had gotten into the car of this man that she told Cindy about. But they were unable to identify anyone that she may have been talking about. Then, after learning more about Valerie, investigators thought that she may have gotten into the vehicle of a stranger, which apparently she'd been known to do in the past. And I don't know what that's in reference to or what evidence they have of that or whatever, but that's what the reporting says. So while it's unclear if Valerie ever met with her male friend, 
or whether she'd gotten into anyone's vehicle, there were a few confirmed sightings that occurred after Cindy went to the pool. At around 8.30 p.m., Valerie went back to her friend Luann's house to see if she wanted to hang out, but Luann wasn't home, so Valerie left. This is after the pool with Cindy, which is very odd. And after Valerie left Luann's house, I don't know where she went. But the last confirmed sighting of Valerie actually came from her sister, who'd been sitting on the front step of a Waverly home at 8.50 p.m. And her sister says that she saw Valerie walking across Highway 218, headed west. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Stodd, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. On June 13, 1971, 
14-year-old Valerie Klasowski was dropped off at the swimming pool with her friend Cindy. But Valerie didn't go into the pool. Instead, she asked Cindy to hold on her swimsuit and to her towel, and she said she had to go meet up with a friend. Otherwise, he'd be mad. Valerie never came back to the pool, and she was seen two times after that, before 9 p.m. that evening. And she was reported by her father when she didn't make it home by 10 p.m. Terry had no idea about the other murders that had occurred in Waverly until her friend had been murdered herself. But decades have passed, and now, of course, thanks to the internet, she knows all there is to know about Valerie's case. And Terry told us that she finds it odd that there wasn't a confirmed sighting of Valerie willingly getting into somebody's car or getting abducted. I found it very strange. She she was at the public pool there, which is not large. There's a park around it, a Dairy Queen almost right next to it. There were people in the summer around there. And she did not go into the pool with her girlfriend. She said, I'm going to go talk to this, I think, guy that she was that was going to meet her there. And then she was basically never seen again. And all these people were there at the pool. And there's people in and out of the parking lot and kids riding their bikes. And how could no one see anything <laughs> about her from that point on? On the morning of June 15th, around 36 hours after Valerie had disappeared, the 14-year-old's partially clad body was found near a bridge southeast of Waverly, about 10 miles from the pool where she'd been with her friend. And a group of boys had been walking in a creek when they found her, lying on the creek bed, which was beside a gravel road. She'd been strangled so forcefully that her larynx had been fractured, very much like Lisa. Officials didn't say if she'd been sexually assaulted or not, but it's assumed she was. The only clothing she had on were her upper garments, which had been pulled up around her shoulders. Decomposition had already started to set in, so authorities theorized that she'd been killed the night that she went missing. She was then likely dumped near the bridge shortly after. The person either drove up on the gravel road, then carried her body to the creek bed to dump her, or they could have dumped her body from the bridge, which only had a three-foot reeling and a 12-foot drop. For weeks, authorities followed up on tips they'd received in Valerie's case. She'd supposedly been seen around a motorcycle gang on the night she disappeared. But there'd also been reports of a prowler roaming around the neighborhood on the night she disappeared. And in the weeks actually preceding it. But after interviewing more than 150 people and spending thousands of hours investigating the case, authorities were no closer in finding Valerie's killer, and her case went cold. What I find super interesting, uh, and I looked at reporting of the time, is how much they focus on the things about her upbringing and she'd been known yeah. to get in car with strangers. And I'm like, you're victim blaming a 14 year old girl. I just want to be clear. Also, like, like, what's the fucking difference? Not. Like, how does that have to do with anything in the case at all? It's just 14 is so, so young that I'm always like, you're talking about her like she's a grown woman. And not that it's okay in that case either. But it's just it's just so uh, unnerving to read how they would describe people like Valerie who go missing, children. Yeah. I, I mean, part of it is is that, yeah, yeah. If the, if the cops are saying that and saying like, okay, yeah, she would get into a car, they are trying to do like a mini profile. But then when the, when the media I think you're, does that, I think you're giving them a lot of bandwidth. The cops are still like no, good no, old no, boys. But, but, but also it's like, it's a profile of her. Like that's yeah, not a profile right. of what the, who the killer would be. The, the problem is that when the media does that, the media automatically will do that. And then people will be like, oh, well, you know what? That's what happened. And they, they call it a day. 
And that that's 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 the big issue there. Yeah, sure. But it, I mean, the media gets the information from the police. So I think it's yeah. all one and the same. But they could, yeah, but they, they could they could temper it a little bit. But they weren't doing that back then. Valerie's killer was not found. And for four years, people continued to wonder what happened to her. And there was fear about whether her killer would take more lives. But you know how it goes. There's panic in an area because something horrible happens. The fear eventually, over time, slowly dissipates. The threat appears to neutralize, and people are forced to move on with their lives. And that's exactly what happened here. That was until that false sense of security was shattered once more. In November of 1975, when another young woman disappeared from Waverly. Julie Ann Benning, the oldest of five girls, was born December 12, 1956, to parents Lowell and Joanne. The Benning family lived on a farm in Clarksville, 15 miles outside of Waverly. Julie had a quick smile and a zany laugh. She was bold, outgoing, and friendly. And she thoroughly enjoyed meeting people and wasn't afraid to make something happen for herself. And a fun little anecdote was before she disappeared, she had already jumped the fence at an Eagles concert and chatted with the lead singer, Glenn Fry. This is a woman after my own heart. It's something that I have done many times in the past. And she'd also gone to dinner with the rock band Foghat. Julie attended Plainfield High School, located in Nashua, Iowa, around 20 miles outside of Waverly. She was involved in many extracurricular activities, including band and chorus. She was also on the school paper. As a huge fan of Nancy Drew, Julie's passion was investigative journalism. And that's a woman after my own heart. Before she graduated in May of 1975, Julie wrote a controversial piece about being anti-death penalty. And she wrote, murder is a horrible crime to commit. And of course, the offender must be punished. But does that mean he should rot in prison until he dies? I don't think so. Nor do I think any person has the right to say someone should never be let out of prison or give them the death penalty. Julie urged her readers to, quote, put yourself in their shoes. The convicts are still humans, too. I hope people will be willing to help them and lend support in convicts' efforts to rehabilitate themselves. Thought-provoking. I respectfully mm -hmm. disagree. <laughs> well, only because it's like the irony with this, you know, mm, yeah. the irony Very with ironic. this is like, it's chilling the irony yeah. here. So after graduating high school, Julie took a job as a waitress at the Sir Lounge, which was an upscale gentleman's club in Waverly. So because she didn't have a car and her family's farm was around 15 miles outside of town, Julie moved in with her aunt and grandmother in Waverly. So she was closer to work. She was known to be a very hard worker who rarely took any time off. And her boss even encouraged her to stop working so much. She should socialize. She should make other friends. She should date. But Julie said she didn't have anywhere to go. She wasn't big on dating. And she had even gone stag to prom when she was in high school. Which, you know, badass, confident, love that. Yeah, I love that too. So on November 28th, 1975, Julie, who was only a few weeks away from her 19th birthday, disappeared. And this is what we know about what she did on that day. At around 5.05 p.m., she picked up some shoes from a shoe repair store and then walked to work. 
And initially it was reported that she was last seen walking on Waverly's main street towards her work, but it was later revealed that Julie had actually made it to work and had disappeared from the front entry while she was collecting her cover charges. And this is super, super bizarre because how did nobody see or hear anything if this all happened at her place of work? Yeah. It's really but there's weird. something I want as there's something I want to point out really quickly is that Lisa at the strip mall where she disappeared from had gone to a shoe store and that was one of the last places she had gone is to buy a pair of shoes. Julie is last seen picking up a pair of shoes from a repair shop. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an odd coincidence. It is. When Julie didn't return home after work, her father Lowell was notified. Knowing his daughter wasn't just the type to disappear, He went to the police right away. But remember, this is the 70s. And this is a time when authorities often required family members to wait a specific amount of time before reporting their loved ones missing, even children. And they still do this, by the way. So it's so funny. I mean, we've we've been comparing and contrasting a lot, but a lot has not changed, which is kind of aggravating. Yeah. Yeah. And without cell phones or ways for young people to check in with families – there was often a perfectly good explanation for parents not hearing from their kids. And they they just went off on some adventure, and then their parents, they would come home, and then their parents would ground them. And this happened all the time. It happened to me a bunch of times. But with Julie's case, there was no exception. The police weren't convinced her disappearance was anything out of the ordinary for an 18-year-old who worked at a gentleman's club. I mean, they immediately went there and was just like, nope, we're good. Right. And Julie's father begged law enforcement to at least reach out to the media to release information about Julie's disappearance. And the officers basically brushed him off and said, deal with it yourself. Contact the media yourself. And imagine the helplessness of that feeling. Your your child is missing and it's got to be the worst feeling that exists. Absolutely. But, you know, Julie's dad did just that. He went to KWWL Radio, and they aired a report about Julie. Thankfully, they agreed to do so. And luckily, someone from the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigations was listening to that radio report, and thankfully, that agent gave a shit and sent an agent to investigate her disappearance. And that's why the media should do these things. Even in the 70s, it worked. Yeah. So Waverly Police Chief Clarence Wickham told the media that since this was a small town, he knew Julie and he knew that she hitchhiked an awful lot. So this chief basically undermined any work that Lowell had done in getting attention for his daughter's case, which again, this is super, super heartbreaking. It was as if Chief Wickham was implying that Julie had been hitchhiking the night that she disappeared, which meant that whatever happened to her was her own fault. So not only is the statement completely harmful, but it was also completely untrue. So it may have been a popular time for hitchhiking. A lot of people did hitchhike, but all of Julie's friends and family said that she never took a ride from a stranger. And she'd also purposely moved into a town so she wouldn't have to worry about this 15-mile drive every single day. For months, authorities searched for Julie and even followed leads into other states. But there was no sign of her anywhere. That was until March 18th, 1976, when a road maintenance worker found her naked body in a ditch by the side of the road. It appeared that her body had been in a culvert all winter, and then the spring rains washed her body out. An autopsy determined her cause of death as homicidal violence caused by injury to the throat area. Unfortunately, it was hard to determine anything else due to decomposition. 
The most aggravating thing about this story is the police chief's response to her being missing. Oh, yeah. Like, Lowell's obviously a dad who is carrying the torch for his daughter like any dad would. And yeah. for the chief to just sit, she didn't even she didn't even hitchhike. Like, that is a complete lie, which causes people to stop mm-hmm. looking for people and stop giving a shit. It's just so sad. Yeah, it's so fucked up. And it's like, imagine how many other people that were just kind of like shoved off to the side with the same fucking excuse that wasn't even true. So because Waverly is such a small town, it's kind of easy to understand why everyone was quick to question whether Julie's murder could be related to Valerie's. There were quite a few similarities between the two cases. While Valerie was 14 when she was killed, she looked older due to her height and her weight and sort of her stature. It's possible the killer could have thought she was around Julie's age, 18 or 19. Both Valerie and Julie were last seen walking around or working in Waverly, and they'd most likely been raped, both of them, and both suffered strangulation and throat injuries. So the similarities are apparent. But there were also some notable differences as well between the two cases. Valerie was known to get in the car with strangers while Julie was not. Valerie was found partially clothed while Julie was found naked. And Valerie's body was dumped while Julie's was hidden. And then there was the murder we spoke of at the start of these episodes, that of Lisa Peak, which in some ways was very similar to both Valerie and Julie. Like Valerie and Julie, Lisa was last seen out and about in broad daylight. Her body was found nude and had been raped before she was strangled. And Lisa's friend Terry couldn't help but notice one more similarity between the three women. They were all victims that the media may have brushed off and dismissed. You know, we talked about this a little bit a few moments ago, how the media tends to put victims into boxes. It's a sickening and deplorable thing. But some are brushed off as living a high-risk lifestyle, um, essentially making them seem as though they're damaged goods, as if... They deserved what they got because of what they did that day or the things they did in the past. And then some victims are classified as truly innocent. You know, it's just a really gross way that media puts people in boxes. We saw this with the police chief and what he said when Julie was missing. And this stuff still happens all the time. With Lisa and Julie, people were quick to dismiss their murders as being the fault of the women and girls themselves. Lisa had been involved with a sex trafficking ring after all. She'd been victimized before. And Julie, she worked at a gentleman's club. So dismiss, 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 and it's disgusting. One of the things that's always disturbed me about all of these, and it happened in Lisa's case, was they really kind of attacked these girls' characters. And that really bothered me. Terry remembers the questions that came up about Lisa and her character after she was murdered. Questions that were postured to victim blame. Did she date around? Did she sleep around? Did she do this? Did she? And none of that matters. I don't care where Julie worked or what Lisa did. She never did anything different than any other girl that age. They realize they have to ask questions and look into, but just because Julie worked at the Sir Lounge and just because Lisa, you know, had dated people or been through this traumatic event, you know, with John Carmody, doesn't mean they were girls not that their lives didn't mean the same as anyone else's. Now when I hear some of this reported, they're like, oh, well, they all hitchhiked. Well, so did a lot of other people at that time, especially students who wanted to go home for a weekend and get back. You'd get a ride with somebody. You know, it wasn't unusual. 
Even in Valerie's case, who was a 14-year-old child, people continued to point to her upbringing. She lived at home with her single father, who worked a lot, and it didn't appear that she had a ton of supervision. Plus, she was known to hitchhike, but again, all of this is literally victim-blaming a child. Yeah, and just to recap, Julie and Valerie both look to be around the same age. They'd last been seen walking around Waverly, and they had most likely been raped and died due to strangulation and throat injuries. While Julie and Valerie's cases seemed fairly similar, Julie and Lisa's cases were eerily similar. Let's start with the fact that they looked almost pretty identical. And we're looking at their two pictures now, and they are very, very similar. I mean, they they look like sex stars. If they were making the same facial expression, I would think it was the same person. I actually would think it was the same person if I didn't know. But if one was making the the face the other one was making, other than Lisa's bangs, I mean, very, very similar. Yeah, it's crazy. So beyond the physical similarities, there were others. Both women were born in December of 1956. In fact, Julie was just two days older than Lisa. They were both the oldest of five children. Interesting coincidence. They were both invested in pursuing careers in journalism. They both enjoyed reading and writing about mysteries. Both women didn't have a car and did not take rides from strangers. Lisa may have done so in the past, but after her dealings with Carmody, she was very apprehensive about men and people she didn't know in general. And the weirdest coincidence of all is one that Alexis already gave a spoiler about, but both women went to shoe stores before they had disappeared. So Lisa had told a friend that she was stopping by a shoe store and Julie had gone to pick up a pair of repaired shoes. And to make things even weirder about this whole shoe coincidence, John Carmody met his first wife at a shoe repair store that her father owned. That's really weird. It that is, is bizarre. so weird. So like weird. Like the whole thing about John Carmody too, it's like, where is this going? Yeah. yeah. Truly, a crazy case. Very weird. So the only major difference between Lisa and Julie's murders appeared to be the way their bodies were left to be found. Remember, Lisa was left out in the open while Julie was hidden in that culvert. What can we deduce based on all we've just gone over? So here's what we can kind of begin to to experiment with as far as what we know and what we think happened. Obviously, the motive in all three murders appears to be sexual in nature which is no surprise when considering that strangulation is the cause of death in 67% of sexual murders. But what does the motive of a sexual homicidal strangulation tell us? So according to several, several uh, profiling sources, which I take with a grain of salt, but I think we can lean on psychology when it comes to this. Studies have shown that the most frequent motives have been rape and sexual jealousy and personal rivalry, obviously, playing things out from childhood, playing resentments out from childhood. We've seen this in a lot of serial killer cases. People are mad at their moms. They're mad at their dads. They're mad at their first girlfriend who broke their heart. Right. And, yeah. and they're they're working something out on um, innocent victims. Yeah, and we saw that a lot. You know, we saw that, I mean, specifically with the case that me and Lex worked on, the Golden State Killer case. It was just like, you know, people – looked at Bonnie with that and was just like, oh, that's what he's doing. He he was going after his his uh, the woman that broke his heart, which put a really I mean, eventually at the end of the day, the guy was a complete scumbag and they shouldn't have put it put that all on her, but it happens. 
I mean, really, Bonnie's just the smart one who was like, I'm good on this guy. <laughs> like, yeah. she's a G- everyone should take notes from Bonnie, frankly. Fourteen-year-old Valerie, eighteen-year-old Julie, and nineteen-year-old Lisa all went missing from Waverly, Iowa, between 1971 and 1976. All three were found nude or partially nude, had most likely been raped, and were dead from throat or neck injuries. In all three cases, and this is the most upsetting part, remain unsolved to this day. So, who's responsible for this? With Lisa's case initially, it looked so cut and dry. It seemed really simple. Obviously, John Carmody, the man who had sex trafficked and threatened the life of Lisa, must have been involved in her murder in some way based on the contentious situation between them and the resentment that he had to Lisa for testifying against him. It seemed so, so obvious. So could he be the person behind Lisa's murder? If you're looking at her case alone, it seems really plausible. But this theory gets really shaky when you consider the variables of Valerie and Julie. But is it possible that Carmody somehow could be connected to all three of these victims? It seems far-fetched, but let's explore this as a possibility, just for the sake of diligence. So here's what we know about where Carmody was and what he was doing when Valerie and Julie were killed. Carmody moved to Iowa in 1971, the same year that 14-year-old Valerie was murdered. He moved there after being charged with asking a 13-year-old to give him a bath. God. Valerie told Cindy she had to go meet with a male friend who would be mad at her if she didn't show up. That sounds a lot like a Carmody thing to do based on what we learned about him in part one about how we treated Lisa. And we know, obviously, he has a penchant for early, early teens, 13-year-old. Carmody was still living in Iowa when Julie was killed on November 28th of 75. And ironically, that's right when he was ramping up his extortion sex trafficking ring. So the question is, is it possible someone had gone to the gentleman's club to recruit women into Carmody's sex ring? And Julie said no. And as we know, in the world of crime, I mean, it's far-fetched, but anything is possible. As far as Lisa, we know for sure that Carmody was behind bars when she was killed. So he couldn't physically be responsible, but that doesn't mean he didn't order someone to kill her out of spite, out of revenge, as he means to silence her and stop her from writing this book. And with all that being said, investigators have announced publicly that they do not believe that Carmody was involved in Lisa's murder. Which is mind exploding. It is you so know, like crazy. It's like, it's, again, the most obvious, you know, it's it's one of these cases that like defies Occam's razor. You know, it's like yeah, someone it really does. Someone mm-hmm. hurt you. Someone said they would kill you if you went against them. You go against them. But it's probably not them. And it's it's why we always have to just see how the evidence plays out and not jump to conclusions because like they really believe that he's not involved. Yeah. But with no other idea. So Mason City Deputy Police Chief Dwayne Jewell said, when that first happened, I knew that Carmody didn't do it. He was in prison and I knew he didn't have any connections. He was just a small town hood himself. Organized crime don't have one man operations like that. Lisa's mother, Mary, has said she also no longer believes Carmody was involved. However, she still thinks that Lisa's involvement in the sex ring led her straight to her killer. Mary said, I think that was the thing that did it. I think the killer heard about her and it interested him and he wanted to get hold of her. 
Following Lisa's murder, Mary and Frank blamed themselves because they'd taken her to the police station to turn him in. Mary thought maybe she'd still be alive if we hadn't done that, which is so horrible. It's horrible and not true. Yeah. You know, like you, yeah. when you do the right thing, sometimes yeah, the right thing. Yeah. you just always have to do the right thing and you can never question it. It was the right thing to do. And it breaks my heart that that's how they felt. Yeah. So Terry, Lisa's friend still has a difficult time completely dismissing Carmody's possible involvement. And I understand why it just seems too obvious. Yeah. So we asked for her opinion on the various theories that are out there. If I had to pick what I'd say, okay, which one do I really feel? I still feel like I still lean toward him, him or someone, like I said, one of these women. And maybe that's because I'm closer to that in a way because of what she told me, knowing what she went through with John Carmody and these other two women, especially makes me very suspicious. I would have no doubt if someone said tomorrow, oh, it was these two and this is what they did. I wouldn't be surprised. They were saying that by people perpetuating this rumor about these women that it took away from the actual, you know, perpetrator that was most likely involved in these other two. So here's the kicker. When all of this is said and done, John Carmody only served 10 years before he was released from prison due to overcrowding in June of 1986. According to the Des Moines Register, they said a statistical parole assessment showed that Carmody was considered a, quote, very good safety risk, and there was an excellent chance that he would not commit a violent act on parole. And this assessment was unsurprisingly very wrong because Carmody re-offended. In 1990, only four years after his release, he was sentenced to 25 years for two counts of third-degree sexual abuse of a 15-year-old girl. None of this is surprising at all. I'm also going to guarantee... He did it before. It's just four years after oh, he got course. caught. He did oh, it yeah. as yeah. soon as he got out of jail. This fucking Of course guy. he did. Right. Of course he did. Let me add, add on top of this. In 2009, Carmody was released early again, even though the state had submitted evidence stating he refused to participate in all aspects of sex offender treatment and shouldn't be placed in a transitional release program. Carmody appealed the state's evidence by submitting a report by one of his doctors which indicated that his condition had changed and he was not likely to commit sexually violent offenses if released. Condition. Yeah. Good doctor Oh, my there. sex yeah. condition. My rapist condition. Yeah. This yeah, I'm guy. sure this that can fucking, fucking change. According to court records, the doctor's conclusion was based on data that indicated that recidivism declines with age and that the chance of 67-year-old Carmody reoffending based on his age was 10%. And it looks like Carmody hasn't reoffended since his release. Allegedly. Or at least he hasn't freaking been caught. Last we knew he was in Texas, and that's all I know. But I feel, I just get angry because I feel like he's had that sense, then had a second chance, then again hurt another, you know, maybe more than one girl, and, and is now free. In 2009, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation established a cold case unit about time. Valerie, Julie, and Lisa's cases were all uploaded into the unit's new website, which cataloged about 150 cold cases in this state. So here's the weird thing. The very weird thing. Apparently, they've ruled out the possibility that all three murders are connected. We've also learned that they've ruled out Carmody. So it, it adds this other variable 
that we haven't covered here because we don't yeah. know it or understand it. It's so crazy. And we don't know on what basis they're making these conclusions. So they are convinced that the same killer is responsible for the murders of Julie and Lisa, which is extremely disturbing given that we know they look almost identical and have all those mm-hmm. similarities, you know, which means they don't believe Valerie's killer is involved. But what's even more alarming about Lisa and Julie is that so many of their similarities were not physical. So many of them, you would have to know them to know these yeah. similarities. Like which, their interests. Yeah. Interest being the oldest of, of the children, you know, it's, it, it's just really alarming to think about, but unfortunately beyond that, we don't know what they think. But like, if, if this person picked people so similar, the implication is that they might know them, um, which is terrifying, but who knows? So even though decades had gone by since Lisa's murder, the cold case unit was really serious about trying to solve it, which was made evident by the fact that in 2010, Lisa's body was exhumed in hopes that they would be able to recover some DNA that they hadn't been able to collect in the 1970s. And Lisa's parents, who, and this is so, so horrible, lost another daughter in a horseback riding accident two months after Lisa died. They were really hopeful that they could finally get answers about Lisa. Sadly, Lisa's coffin was broken and her body was too decomposed to collect evidence from. And sadly, again, her parents died before they ever found out who murdered their daughter. Oh, it breaks my heart. Horrible. Like, I have the chills thinking about it. I don't wish it on anyone. And to this day, Terry has so many questions about the evidence in Lisa's case. If they knew she was sexually assaulted, why is there no evidence of anything that was taken from her body? Because her body was found almost immediately. Where the other girls, it had been longer and more difficult because they had decomposed and different things had happened. And I've just never understood why there wasn't something. It's unimaginable to me that all these years, someone out there has to know and that they have never come forward or gotten, you know, someone else reported it or something. That there's been no real information, it seems like, from anyone about any of these cases. And that's just... That's just unbelievable to me. These cases continue to haunt the victim's loved ones, as well as the people of Waverly, every single day. These cases changed people, people like Terry. The hardest part was knowing that she went through such a traumatic event. I mean, actually considered suicide compared to continuing her life and then chose to do the right thing and go forward and do what she did. And then less than a year later, to be killed the way she was killed and found was just heartbreaking. Even if this person is is gone from this earth, we still need to know who, why. It's just, it affects your whole life and people that have never been through that. um, I don't think you really understand. The friends and family of Valerie, Julie and Lisa deserve answers. So if you have any information about Lisa's unsolved murder or that of Julie or Valerie, please contact the FBI at 712-258-1920 or contact the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, 515-725-6010. And if you don't have any tips to report, you can share this episode, you can share their photos, you can share articles about them. Do, Do what you can, because even though decades have passed, 
the impact this had on Terry's life is evident. And if it had an impact on her, her life, imagine everyone else connected to these three innocent people. And this happened in the 70s, and you can hear it in Terry's voice. She cares. She wants answers. And the idea that it might not be solved is devastating for her. It changed the way I dated. It changed how I lived my daily life. It definitely changed years later with raising my kids. You know, I just was much more distrustful. It's never out of my thoughts. I never stopped thinking and and hoping about anything that would help her case. And so, yeah, it it did drastically, I think, change just how I saw the world and how I live day to day. I appreciate this more than you know, because as hard as and emotional as it is, it's still, it's like, oh, other people do care. I think the more people that know, you know, maybe someone will come forward. That's my hope. I'm getting older and just knowing who would, would mean a lot. Even 45 plus years later, Terry still brought to tears with thoughts of her friend and the life and potential that was stolen from her. We'll hope every single day for a resolution in each of these cases, but either way, Terry is doing everything she can to ensure Lisa's name will never be forgotten. For that, Terry, we thank you. Thank you, Terry, so, so much for telling us your story and being so vulnerable with us. And again, we're honored to be able to tell it. And if you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and come subscribe to our Patreon. We're having lots of fun content over there. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Happy Geek Day. That's right. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Kaylin Cleveland, writing by Haley Gray. Sources for this episode are Iowa Cold Cases, Waverly Community News, The Courier, New York Daily News, The Des Moines Register, Iowa City Press Citizen, Carol Daily Times-Herald, Globe Gazette, York Daily Record, And as always, our first degree guest is completely our largest source.